Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week uh, we heard of uh, God delivering Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God uh, rescuing them at the Red Sea, leading them through on dry ground and bringing the sea in uh, to cover the Egyptian army which was pursuing them. This week we hear of God now uh, giving this people a new identity at the mountain of Sinai. So if last week we heard especially about God freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt, this week we are hearing about what God has freed Israel to be, what God has freed Israel for. Three months have passed since Israel came out of Egypt. Three months that have been fairly eventful months as they've uh, journeyed through the desert, journeyed through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. This, uh, it's called the Mountain of God in our reading today. Uh, and uh, on their way, they have been fed by manna and quail. You remember this story? On their way, God has miraculously provided uh, water in several of the places that they have stopped. On their way, they have complained to Moses. We've heard this uh, already at the edge of the Red Sea, but this continues as pattern. Uh, They even name a place uh, after uh, 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 Meribah, which means complaining, uh, even uh, because of uh, their their complaining on the journey. And they have been attacked by a hostile nation, the Amalekites. They have actually had a battle already in the wilderness on the way to the mountain. It's been an eventful few months. But now they've arrived. They finally come to this place. And it's the same place, by the way, where God first appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Moses, or uh, God rather, started everything. He set the plan in motion to deliver Israel from slavery in this place. And now God is setting in motion the uh, plan to make Israel from a peoples, a enslaved gathering of peoples into the great nation that God promised to Abraham and to Sarah so many generations before. So if you want to think about it this way, uh, God is now in the process of first he made a people out of this childless couple of Abraham and Sarah. Now he is making a nation out of this enslaved peoples. This is now the process of the wilderness. Now, if you remember the wilderness story, so they've been out there for a few months now, um, and it seems like things are probably going to go well, right? I mean, they've made it to the mountain. God is now giving their commi- giving God's commands. They're going to receive this whole law covenant from God and from Moses at the mountain. Uh, This actually goes on for all of the rest of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, uh, and then half of the book of Numbers all takes place at the mountain here, uh, talking about these law codes. And then they will move on to Canaan. But if you remember, when they get to the promised land of Canaan, they arrive at the borders, they send in spies. You remember this story? They send in spies to, to see the land, see what the quality of the land is, see who lives there. And the spies come back, and most of them bring this uh, fearful report of what they saw, that the people in the land were strong. They say there are giants in the land, and probably giants more in the sense of NFL linemen uh, than in the sense of Lord of the Rings or something like that. Uh, But there's giants in the land. They say say the people are very strong. A couple of the spies uh, say, well, you know, God will deliver us into the land, but most of the people hear not that report. They hear the fearful report. They get to the uh, border of the promised land and they are unable to trust that God can deliver on the promise that has been passed down, that has been given through so many generations. It seemed like it was fairly easy for God to remove the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, 
but it seems to take a bit more work to remove the habits of slavery from the Israelites in the wilderness. And so God decides to keep them in the wilderness for several more decades, 40 years, he keeps them in the wilderness, enough time for another generation to rise up uh, in Israel to emerge, and then God will lead them into the promised land, and we'll hear some of that next week, actually. So, this wilderness experience is really this, this moment, it's this experience that forms the nation of Israel, that constitutes them. When they left Egypt, it wasn't just Israelites who left. Some of the peoples of Egypt go with them. We hear this in Exodus 12. Uh, and, but this experience in the wilderness forms them now all into this nation of Israel, which will move into the promised land at the end. And so God here at Sinai is giving them their new identity. No longer are they the enslaved people. They are to be God's own treasured people. So in our reading in Exodus uh, 19, uh, those verses 3 through 7 that we hear, this is how God puts it. He says, uh, if you uh, obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, he says, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation a priestly kingdom and a holy nation, God's treasured possession out of all the peoples. Now, as their experience in the wilderness shows, as their experience in uh, the slavery shows, even when Moses comes to them and they say, it would have been better if you had never come, if you had left us in slavery, we heard this last week, Did, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? Do you remember this complaint they make to Moses? Uh, as it shows, these aren't a people that you would maybe want to choose for your special possessions. Uh, if, if there is going to be a, a selected, uh, a chosenness, an election of Israel, it's clearly not just because Israel is the most deserving nation. It's not their deep faithfulness. It's not their deep moral seriousness that leads God to give them these commands, to give them this covenant, this identity. But rather, God has decided to make a choice with Israel. And of course, as the years go on, as the generations go on, God will continue to make this choice, even as this nation shows itself uh, not to live up to the ideals that God has set out for it. But still, God here gives the identity. I mentioned this in the children's sermon, but uh, these commandments that give, this, this, this Ten Commandments are not just a list of rules for us to follow, but they actually are the giving of an identity. So everything in these Ten Commandments comes in the context of making these people into God's people, of teaching them, showing them what it looks like, what it means to live as God's people, to be the priestly kingdom, the holy nation, this uh, political entity who stands before God on behalf of the entire world. Remember the promise to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all nations. All nations will be blessed through you, through your descendants. This is Israel's call. And so when God gives the Ten Commandments, he's not just listing rules. In fact, if you uh, look in your Bible or even in the bulletin reading, you'll notice there's no numbering system of the Ten Commandments. And also in Exodus 20, the word commandment is never used. There's nowhere that it says God gave these commandments and there's no numbering system. In fact, if you've ever compared uh, uh, commandments with people who go to other uh, Christian churches, you may have noticed that there's some uh, different uh, differences in numbering systems across uh, Protestant churches. Uh, Lutherans and Catholics use one. Orthodox uses another. Most Jewish traditions use yet a third uh, version of numbering them. Uh, in fact, if you go out and look on, uh, there's this tapestry hanging in our narthex of the Ten Commandments. That's not even the Lutheran uh, numbering. That's the 
Protestant numbering. So we have multiple in our own church building, in fact. If you open a catechism, you'll notice they're numbered differently. Um, But there's more than just rules here, and they're not just commandments, because it opens with this statement of promise. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then our text reads, you shall have no other gods before me. Actually, a better translation there is, there will be for you no other gods before me. It's not so much a command not to uh, seek out after idols or other gods. That will come in the next verse. Right now, it's a promise. It's a statement of reality that at the end of the day, the only God for Israel is Yahweh, the Lord. He is the one who has delivered them from Egypt. He is the one who will be their God. All other so-called gods to whom Israel uh, will turn will turn out to be no gods at all. At the end of the day, God will be their God. Now, this is a promise. This isn't something that Israel uh, can accomplish for themselves. They can't make God to be their God. They can't uh, even get rid of idols uh, on their own. The history of Israel shows that they are never successful about getting rid of idols, uh, at least not until after the exile, and even then it's questionable. Uh, This isn't something that they can accomplish, and yet God is now promising to them that this is the way that it will be. Everything else in the Ten Commandments, all of these other commandments, uh, honoring the Sabbath, uh, using God's name rightfully, uh, uh, not carving idols, uh, honoring your father and mother, not murdering, not stealing, not lying, not coveting, not committing adultery, all of this flows from this first statement that God makes, his first promise that I am the Lord your God, you will have no other gods before me. In just a few weeks, we will hear um, just how bad uh, Israel, God's people, can be at uh, living up to these standards that are set. Just, in just a few weeks, uh, we will hear the story of King David, that great hero of the faith, and we will see how damaging it is when a king covets someone and the sort of sin that results from that. Really, throughout history, God's people, whether it is Israel or the the Christian church after Jesus, has shown again and again that we don't live up to these commandments the way that we ought to. Again and again, we find ourselves guilty of killing. We find ourselves guilty of stealing, of adultery. We find ourselves guilty of coveting, let alone uh, keeping the Sabbath, using God's name rightly, having no other gods. We don't make it very far here. In 1 Peter, uh, Peter refers to this promise of 19, this, this uh, naming of Israel, but he applies it now to the church. So I'm looking in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. This is what he writes to those first early Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sounds familiar. God's own people in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once he says you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. As Christians today, our lives follow that very same pattern that the people of God's lives followed, uh, leaving the slavery of Egypt and finding themselves uh, given a covenant, a promise by God at Mount Sinai. For we too have been delivered from a slavery, 
a captivity to sin. We confess this at the beginning of every service. We confess that we are captives to sin, that we are slaves to sin, that we are in bondage to sin, an older version says. And we cannot free ourselves, and yet God has delivered us and has even shown us how to live as God's people. And day in and day out, we find that we don't live up to it as we should. Yet this promise remains. One of my favorite books, this is a little book, it's called Free to Be, maybe some of you have experienced it or not. Uh, it was written as a uh, cat, uh, confirmation program, I think in the 70s, um, and this is a 93 edition, um, but it's written by Gerhard Ferdy and uh, Jim Nestingen, and they open uh, by talking about the first commandment, and I think it's just worth reading the first uh, couple paragraphs of this book, because I think it's just fantastic. Uh, so the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods. This is what they write. God has made a decision about you. God hasn't waited to find out how sincere you are, how devout or religious you might be, or how well you understand the Bible and the catechism. God hasn't even waited to find out if you're interested or willing to take this decision seriously. God has simply decided. God made this decision knowing full well the kind of person you are. God knows you better than anyone else could, inside out, upside down, and backwards. God knows where you are strong and where you are weak, what you are most proud of and what you would most like to hide. Be that as it may, God's decision is made. God comes straight out with it. I am the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, whatever sin clings to you on a day-by-day basis, whatever disbelief or despair threatens to pull you away from trusting in your Creator, God has made a decision about you. God has decided to be your God, to be a God who is for you and not against you, to be a God who uh, loves you and preserves you, not a God who judges and destroys you. God has chosen you, and that choice informs everything that you do. Your whole life now is lived out of God's choice, God's selection, God's election, of you. This is who you are now. People of God, flawed though you certainly are, God has chosen to make you his people, to use you, to proclaim his mighty acts in the world, and to preserve you even through death itself by the power of his promise, by the power of this decision that he has made. For God has decided for you, not against you, and God's decision is final. Amen.